The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 19th of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Education and uh, teaching will be the subject of much focus uh, this week as uh, the three main teachers trade unions hold uh, their annual Easter conferences. The Minister for Education, Norma Foley, will be in Cork this afternoon where she'll address delegates attending the Association of Secondary School Teachers in Ireland's conference. Minister Foley will hear many of the issues that teachers have right now with pay and conditions set to top the agenda and ask the members voting on motions today for equal pay for all all teachers irrespective of when they started their careers and also for pay increases across the board which will address the cost of living. Let's speak uh, to Jermit Deper who is uh, the Deputy General Secretary with ASTI and on the line to us from Cork this morning. A very good morning to you Jermit and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, just on that last point uh, about getting pay increases that will be in line with uh, the cost of living. Do we know what that means? Well, it seems to change every day, but we have inflation costs uh, up to 7% at the moment. People say these are going to go down, but let's wait and see about that. Um, There have been no real cost of living increases of any kind for the last decade or so, because uh, certainly in the public sector, because unions have been catching up on the cuts that were applied um, at the start, you know, around the 2009, 10, 11 period. Uh, And uh, the ASTI and the teacher unions are not alone in looking for um, increases in line with inflation. Uh, the Public Sectors Committee of the Irish Council of Trade Union is seeking, I think, to, to examine. There, there's a clause in the agreement, as there is in most agreements, that if situations change, things can be looked at. So even before the next agreement, I think we would like to see uh, some amelioration of the, the huge changes in cost of living, which is causing huge problems, uh, particularly, say, for young teachers living in places like Dublin, where the cost of living is so, so high. And now if they're commuting, which a lot of them are commuting very long distances. Suddenly the cost of their commute has, has nearly doubled. Um, so it has to be addressed. Um, the inflation exists. People are struggling now uh, very with, with great difficulty. And then, of course, the other pay issue that has to be addressed is this long-running, sore, shameful uh, fact that younger teachers are paid less. Uh, we are, uh, in the negotiations under the current agreement, we are giving some of the money that there's a 1% available to all teachers, the 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 Standing Committee decided um, last week, or the week before, mm. to um, give uh, about 75% of that to restore the, um, the PME allowance to those teachers who entered. That'll uh, mean a €1,300 increase yes, a, yes, a year yes. for those people and, who are and, in that and category. members are mm-hmm. foregoing an increase for themselves for that. And that should not happen. This, the government did this as an emergency measure, but they have not... Um, they have not uh, moved to equalise it and uh, we are having to uh, do it, as I say, with, with our own money. And there is also another particular mm. issue that the ASTI have, 
that we were in dispute with the government. We lost pay when we were on strike, as is normal, but under the FEMPI legislation, there was a freeze on members' increments. Now, the dispute is long. We're long back at work uh, for many, many years, but that incremental freeze is still there, and that has a very significant impact on... Uh, it, it may seem that the delay of an increment wouldn't make much that much difference, but you put that over 20 years, mm. that has a significant impact on the, the lifetime earnings of teachers, and the government should address that too. Okay, and that goes back to the collapse of the banks and the economic crash that's and right, the yes. emergency legislation that was which, put in place to cut public services. we are still pay. paying for, mm. not the banks, but that's, mm. you know, that's, that's a whole other debate. <laughs> okay, uh, but that's a, a, a lot uh, in uh, one package uh, for the Minister to contend with. If you take, though, the example of uh, the new teachers on, uh, as they're called, on lower rates, uh, you've said for years and end now that that's not acceptable. Uh, you could forgive the Minister for wondering why you have been accepting it, if that's the case. Well, we did take industrial action over it, as I said. We were the one teachers' union that did. We were punished uh, under the FEMPI legislation, which was this dr- draconian legislation introduced to prevent us effectively taking action. Um, our, our members were punished in several ways. One of them, as I said, was the incremental freeze, which still exists for uh, mm. for, for, for members. Uh, also, for younger teachers, they were not in a position to get uh, permanency. Uh, even if they were Jewish normally, uh, CIDs, which teachers can get after two years, that was frozen. Um, and there were various other measures taken. Uh, so, as I say, we did take industrial action. We've mm. been campaigning on it ever since, and we're the only union. But are you effective? Are you effective as a, a trade union? I, I mean, when you've a dispute like this running for years, uh, I think that's probably a fair question, is it not? Yes, no, it is a fair question, and it's very, very difficult. I mean, this has not been a, a good time uh, in terms of the finances of the country, I suppose, for the last decade and a half, mm. and it's been a difficult space for trade unions to operate in. And as I say, the FEMPI legislation made it particularly difficult because it, it basically, I mean, it, in the old days, and, you know, whenever, and I've been on strike in my life in other uh, professions, and you lost your pay, mm. but you didn't have this whole range of other measures that came in behind that, which made it practically impossible for you to continue an industrial action. There has been success. I mean, the 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 new pay, the, the new teachers' pay has not is not back where where it should be, but there have been. Uh, there have been incremental changes to it so that it is now closer. The biggest outstanding issue, not the only one, but the biggest outstanding issue for the younger teachers is the PME allowance. And we are ourselves, as I said, uh, we're using the opportunity of the 1% under sectoral bargaining to try and address that issue. And hopefully that will make uh, the new teachers feel that at least if if the state is not doing something for them, the union is doing something for Mm. them. Okay, the state has said it'll do something, generally speaking. Uh, The Minister for Public uh, Expenditure saying uh, that the government will respond uh, to what seem to be legitimate pay claims because of uh, the increase in uh, the cost of living. If there is to be a new deal, how long should that last for? Uh, Because there is so much uncertainty. Uh, One thing we uh, are fairly certain of, unfortunately, from over the weekend is uh, the news that mortgage interest rates will increase towards the end of this year. And I think once you start going down that road, uh, experience will tell you that every quarter you're going to see increases on top of increases which will add pain to the existing problems that people are facing. Absolutely. And it it is likely discussions on a new deal will start within the next month or so. Uh, We would like to see action before the the old deal finishes because the inflation is happening now, not at some time in the future. How long it lasts for, I mean, that's that's a, a... 
I suppose, not not very long, I think, would be the answer because, as, as you say, things are so unpredictable. And, you know, if you get tied into four or five years and then suddenly, you know, on pay rates based on what people understand might happen and then things get worse as they have very rapidly gotten worse because of, you know, factors such as a war in Ukraine, which nobody expected. Um, so uh, we, we can't tie ourselves in for the long term. But uh, issues do have to be addressed at the moment and, and soon. And I think, uh, I don't think, as I say, the ASJS alone, I think the, the whole of the Public Sector Committee of Congress, of the Conference of Trade Unions, mm. would be of, of a like mind on that, that the issue of inflation has to be addressed. OK, what will your trade union be saying to the Minister today about leaving cert reform? Well, there, there will be a couple of uh, new motions that weren't on the original agenda because we were taken very much aback by the Minister's announcement. The first thing I'll say it was it was a, a very shabby treatment of the partners in education that people got an email the night before saying that there would be an announcement and we did not expect what, what came in that announcement. Um, we will be saying that uh, we have a long-standing policy which we will be reiterating that teachers do not assess their own students. There are issues around the Leaving Cert and there are issues around stress caused by the Leaving Cert but where that comes from is another matter. A lot of that comes from the CAO system which is not going to be changed by this and though if, even if part of the exam is already over, they will, it will still be stressful and there will be other stress points through the two years. And while as our education system, yes, has problems, but our education system is not broken. It is very successful. We have one of the highest rates of retention in secondary school in the whole world. We're second or third. Um, and not many things are trusted in this country in the way the mm. Leaving Certificate is trusted. Now, there may be issues with it and there may be things we can change and we would certainly welcome the introduction of more second components, uh, but they should be assessed externally, not by the, the teachers themselves. And we also feel that there's a bit, and there was a similar announcement about now that, uh, you know, into the future that um, uh, examinations, oral examinations and practicals would take place in Easter. We agreed the predictive grades. We agreed that orals could be held in Easter as a, a once-off measure because of the COVID crisis. We were assured that there was no precedence being set. And now we are not even being, these things are not even being discussed with us. They're being told that these are uh, what's mm. going to happen in the future. It's very interesting because it, it sounds uh, as though what you're saying is at odds with what uh, the Minister is saying. The Minister seems uh, to be saying uh, that there was widespread consultation and certainly consultation with teachers and uh, the teachers' trade unions. Uh, and you're say- saying uh, that uh, this arrived by email the day before the announcement, uh, as a, a diktat, a fait accompli, well, is well, it? Sorry, what arrived by email was that there would be an announcement, yeah. not even the details of the announcement. Yes, it is a diktat. She has talked to it. It's kind of really it comes down to what do you mean by consultation? Having one or two meetings with people and then suddenly saying, well, now we have decided what the result is going to be. Uh, we were taken aback. People were not expecting this announcement when it happened. And we, uh, we were certainly not expecting the contents of it. And it's absolutely clear our position on examining our students has not changed. And there are very, very good reasons for it. Mm. Um, we're, we're a country that where everybody knows everybody, which is one of the issues. Teachers continually will say they are advocates for their students, they're not judges. And as I said, we have a system that, has, that is trusted by people. And there are second components in mm. lots of subjects which are examined externally by the State Exams Commission. And People are happy with that and they, they trust it. And they, there's an appeal system, but it's anonymous as well. OK, but the Minister and has said it has changed uh, and she's announced the change. Um, but obviously she can't 
uh, follow through on that unless she has the cooperation of the teachers. Uh, is it that she won't have the cooperation of the teachers and that change won't happen? Well, look, we're going to consult our members. Uh, that's the first thing we do. We take a step back and we will, I mean, we will reiterate our current policy, which hasn't changed. And, uh, and the minister would, would, had no suggestion or hint from us that it was going to change. But we will uh, engage in a consultation process with our members to see what bits they, they agree with and what bits they disagree with. But I think if the minister uh, tries to pursue exactly what she announced uh, the other week, uh, I think she's going to have a long and rocky road ahead of her. And I think it's it's very misguided, as I said, because it's a system that works. Uh, there are flaws, obviously, in the education system, but by and large, we have a good education system. People trust the education system. And uh, to, to make major changes without... Uh, and I will say without proper consultation, never mind agreement, from the people who are going to have to introduce it is, is very foolish. Mm. Um, and actually, there, I mean, there'll be other issues at, at our um, yeah. convention. And there was a survey recently. Teacher recruitment, recruitment is in crisis and teachers' job satisfaction is going through the floor. Mm. And this is a, a combination of issues to do with equal pay and pay in general, but also issues to do with the fact that teachers don't believe that their voice is being heard And anymore. your survey found that there were vacancies in half of uh, the secondary schools in uh, the country. Uh, so there's a shortage of staff. Uh, you've overcrowded classrooms despite uh, what progress might have happened there. Those classrooms have been growing as well because of Ukrainian refugees yeah. coming into the country and we're told to expect even more students uh, arriving in schools after the Easter uh, break and uh, indeed in the months ahead. Uh, how are we going to cope with all of that? Well that's that's a, a very good question and I think one of the things, and, and this is not again just an Irish problem but it's particularly acute in Ireland and the OECD who are not a particularly the Organisation for Economic Development, they're not a particularly left-wing organisation but they say we have to pay attention to keeping teaching as an attractive profession. And it, it's clear that it's becoming less and less so. The equal pay issue, I think, had a very damaging effect on younger people looking at a profession where they say, well, I won't be treated as well. Um, there are issues to do with teachers returning from abroad, not getting credit for their service there. There, there are general issues now about pay and conditions and maybe just general attitude to teaching uh, in, in the media. And I'm, I'm not blaming you particularly at all, but there there is a kind of narrative uh, which is kind of negative towards teachers. Mm. But there, there is a problem, and there are problems in particular subjects as well, maths, Irish and home economics being the, the, the huge problems. Uh, we, we are looking for, that there is a motion seeking that uh, students in their second year of their PME should be paid to teach uh, and while they're teaching. And I think that would make it more attractive because it nearly takes nearly six years now to become a teacher. You nearly become a doctor in the right. same time. Mm. And if you're a nurse or if you're a teacher in the UK, you will get paid for that second year. Okay. And I, I think that might make the profession more attractive. OK, well, I'm sure the Minister will hear all of these issues louder and clearer. And more. <laughs> more indeed. Uh, and uh, indeed, across uh, the course of uh, the week, uh, Easter is, uh, as always, uh, the time that the teachers uh, make uh, their views known and very clearly so. Uh, we leave it there for the moment. Uh, as you say, we'll hear more through the day. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this thank morning. Thank you very much. No thank problem. you indeed. So that's Jeremy Deper, Deputy General Secretary, with ASTI. That's uh, the Association of Secondary Teachers in Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Now, Ireland needs a new social contract to ensure well-being for all uh, is achieved. This is according to Social Justice Matters, uh, the 2022 Guide to a Fairer Ireland. Let's speak uh, to Father Sean Healy, the Director of Social Justice Ireland. And a very good morning to you, Sean. Thanks indeed for joining us. Take us back 15 years in time, if you would, to social welfare rates. Uh, and what the equivalent now would be if people were to receive the same benefits today as they did then. The difference in in what they got then and what they get now, uh, if we were to get the exact same, as you suggest, the exact same for it now as we got 15 years ago, it would mean an increase of €27 uh, a week in in the core social welfare rates and in pensions for uh, in the next budget in the budget for 2023 which is only a few months away uh, and i think that's the kind of issue that we need to be thinking about because in effect you have a situation where the value of the welfare rate that, which is the core payment and the, the the only payment that so many people are depending on and we do have 660,000 people living in poverty uh, so uh, the the reality is that they're depending on a very low rate that has lost 27 euro of its value in current terms in the last 15 years and that needs to be rectified because at the, people have to remember that uh, when we're talking about about these we're talking about the people who are most vulnerable they're the 20% of the of the the poorest if you like the the, the people with the lowest income 20% and these are the households who are hardest hit by the uh, rise in the cost of living and that's been documented now by the central bank by the ESRI yeah. by the department of finance by everybody kind of who who, who works in this area so uh, that rising cost of living mean uh, is rising from the fact for example that these households spend a much larger proportion of their income on food and energy than ordinary than than the sort of general um, uh, run of the population because because food and, and energy are kind of staples you, you you can't sort of reduce them and increase them as you have money um, you, you you need a certain amount of food you need a certain amount of energy to keep warm and uh, the, as a result of that there are low uh, low income individuals and families Mm. who have no additional uh, disposable income. They have no wriggle room, if you like. Yeah. Um, and they, they, they're struggling to make ends meet. But I don't think we've ever seen increases on that scale before. Have we? 27 euros, it's an awful lot of money. 20 is the biggest we've had, and that happened in 2007 when that bridge was actually uh, breached, you know, when hmm. government actually did, did bring the, 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 the value of the, uh, the core social welfare payment up to what is today 27.5% of, of average earnings. And I think that's what we need to what we need to think about, you see, is things have changed very fundamentally. Um, like if we, if you go back after the crash of 2008, okay, mm-hmm. and uh, a few years later the troika had gone, the bailout was over, and people were trying to get back, if you like, to what they considered to be normal, get back to the way things were. Now. I think what happened, of course, was that uh, we didn't actually get back to the way we were, and that after the COVID crisis, I know the Ukraine crisis, that we are actually beginning to realize that we need a fundamental change. And unlike the years after 2008, there's, it's now kind of more generally recognized that our economy and society uh, both uh, need to change to become more equal, to become more just, 
and to become more sustainable if we're to meet the needs of the people and, and, and the challenges of the future, uh, which everybody is very conscious of at the moment. Um, and that, that would require very fundamental transitions, if you like, because we have to organize ourselves uh, to have an energy trans- transition, if you like, mm-hmm. to rapidly remove the dependence on fossil fuels and eliminate our greenhouse gas emissions. But we also need a kind of a political economic transition uh, to use more diverse and effective ways to organize the way we make decisions, because we need social dialogue to decide uh, how these difficult decisions are going to be made. What are the decisions that would be acceptable to people? And they're not, people, I think, now are not going to accept a situation where government goes off with a few people and basically decides how uh, they're going to divide up uh, the, the, the amount of the, the, the resources okay. that are available and comes back and tells us. That's not good enough. We need to be involved in that. And particularly, uh, I, I, I myself would take quite serious exception to the idea that has been written about by and, and, and talked about by government ministers and again by IBEC in an article in one of today's papers in which they're talking about uh, coming to conclusions about what needs to be done about pay increases and social welfare increases and so on. And who's going to do it? Employers, trade unions and the government. Yeah. Now, okay. well, I was just going to ask you about those unions. increases because uh, you're talking about serious increases uh, for welfare rates and if you're to do that uh, people will argue that that takes away the incentive for people to go to work. Uh, so I would, what do you... I, I don't think that's the case because in effect what would happen is that we would have to see a situation in which uh, the, 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 the issue of the working poor would have to be dealt with as well and that would involve the government doing two things to bring the, the, the minimum wage up to the level of the living wage mm. and there's, there's over two euro an hour in the difference and then as well as that to make tax credits refundable as use the technical term which means that everybody who has a job would benefit from the full value of the tax credits they're entitled to which is not the case at the moment mm. so those two changes would make a huge difference and would mean that there was absolutely no danger whatsoever of welfare getting in the way of people taking up employment if there are reasons for people uh, not taking up employment welfare rates are not one of them and there, there was well, would a you time see, when would, we had a lot of those traps but those traps mm. have all been eliminated would, would you see low paid people getting increases of around 30 euro you're talking about unemployed people for example going from 208 to 225 a week that's correct, but if you were to raise the, the, the living wage, uh, the minimum wage to the living wage, that's mm. over two euro an hour. And if you talk about 35 hours, say, a week, that means a difference of 70 euro, even after the tax is paid, that, 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 that person is going, to be, is going to get a lot more than 27 euro a week. Mm. You know, so, and that's, that's what we're talking about, and that's what needs to be talked about now, because they, they, these are very substantial changes, very substantial differences that need to be ironed out. And one of the things we keep saying to government is that you, you need a social dialogue structure that brings together employers and trade unions, absolutely, mm. but also includes farmers and the community and voluntary sector and the environmental sector, as we used to be done before in times of crisis. And basically, let let's have a discussion with government and mm. see can we come to some agreement about where the priorities lie what are we going to do in terms of housing and health and mm. the other areas rural development and so on okay. that people are very aware of nowadays Cor- correct, me, correct me if I, if I have uh, the figures wrong but I, I think what you're saying is that you'd bring the minimum wage of 10.50 up to the living wage of 12.90 an hour is that correct. right that's okay correct. so 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 what would that mean for somebody who's on 12.90 now what would they go 
Well, you see, in effect, that would mean if, if they're already on just on the minimum wage and then they get 240 an hour and it, it goes up for, you know, for to, to 35 hours. Mm. So you're talking about uh, 75 plus. Increase, no, no, no. But somebody, but, but somebody who's on 1290 now. Oh, uh, sorry, sorry, yeah, sorry. So, so do they do, do they go to 15? And if somebody is on 15, do they go to 20 and so on and so forth? I think you have to adjust it as the, as the numbers go up. Uh, and I'll tell you why. You you don't you can't have a situation. Where we we don't have the resources to make sure that everybody uh, gains everything that they lose. Okay, but I think what we need to recognise is that people who have more uh, have a bit more of a wriggle room, and consequently, uh, they they should get part of it back, but they won't get the whole thing. At the end of the day, remember, uh, we have inflation, we have a rising cost of living. It isn't all in our own hands. It isn't all caused by ourselves here in Ireland. I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's oil and and gas, and these are the kinds of things that are not completely driving it. There are some things that we certainly could be doing, and we need to do, but. The, 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 the main movers of that are, are gas and oil costs. And that is going to mean that there is, you know, that mm. it, the costs in society are going to be higher. Now, the question is, who's going to bear those costs? And what we're saying is, everybody should get some kind of response, but the, but the better off have a lot more wriggle room than the people who are on the margin. And the bottom 20% in effect should not be asked to pay anything because they don't have any regal room. They're already living in poverty. And like, for example, to give you a simple example, the government has been kind of putting money in and, mm. uh, and it has done so three times now in the last number of months. And I mean, that money is welcome at one level, but they, they keep missing core issues. For example, mm. they keep saying, oh, we'll, they, they make a universal payment. And then, uh, then they say, okay, we, we'll target the, the the, the people on fuel poverty, and we'll give the we'll give we'll we'll raise the fuel allowance. Mm. So that gives gives an increase to three hundred and sixty three hundred and seventy thousand people. But that fails to realise there's another three hundred thousand people living in poverty who don't benefit from the from the fuel allowance at all. Okay. And they get left behind as if they didn't have to be heated at all. Okay, but what about the arguments uh, that pay increases like this won't really make any difference uh, because if you bring somebody from ten fifty to 12.90 uh, and the person on 12.90 goes to 15 and the person on 15 goes to 20 uh, uh, and let's say it's 150 for a loaf of bread suddenly the loaf of bread is going to cost 170 or 2 euro because the employers have to pay more in wages and they have to recoup that somehow so uh, whatever increases people get is offset by the the price increases in the price of bread or milk or whatever it is uh, that's not quite true because you see what you have to do although you're dead right to say it like that that's what a lot of people say. But like you have to keep an eye on where the uh, increase in cost is coming from. So the cost of oil, uh, the cost of gas and so on. And these are critically important. And they've gone up in price all across the world. Now, they've got to a certain level. They're not going to go up by the same amount again. Nobody is predicting that. So we're in a space where we have to deal with what's actually happened already. There might be some slight increases uh, in the the next while. But the bottom line is they're not going to go up again. So in that context, I think we have to sort of decide, okay, Ireland is a wealthy country. It's not a poor country. We have a lot of resources available. Um, the 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 government's budget is in surplus. I mean, this is... 
something that's mm-hmm. spectacular. And we have to recognize we've done hugely well uh, with job creation, uh, although a lot of the jobs, uh, while a lot of the jobs are well paid, a lot of the jobs aren't well paid either because we still have a very, like overall, our economy is far too low paid an economy. Uh, but um, we're one of the lowest paid economies in the OECD countries, and that's all the developed countries in the world. But the, the bottom line at the end of the day is we have to protect the bottom 20% because they're the poorest, they're the ones who are excluded, they're the ones with no legal rooms, they're the ones who are hit hardest by this. Now, all the metrics are there to show that all the research that people are doing that do credible research on this, including Social Justice Ireland, mm. are coming to the same conclusion. We need to prioritize and protect uh, the, the, the poorest 20%. Okay. And that's what needs to be done in, uh, in the build-up to the budget. And government needs to prioritize the protection of the poorest and the most vulnerable. Sean, I have to leave there. We're out of time. But thank you indeed, as always, thank for joining always. us on the program. That's uh, Father Sean Healy, the Director of Social Justice Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. An AA Ireland study of 5,000 motorists has found that 16% of the people who responded said that there had been damage caused to their car or their motorbike or their bike as a result of a pothole. Let's speak to Paddy Common, who's Head of Communications with AA Ireland. A very good morning to you, Paddy. Thanks for joining us. Does this come as any surprise to you? No, no, and and <laughs> I was the victim of it myself right. only a couple of weeks ago. So yeah, I, I could empathise with anyone who's had it. I, I managed to to, uh, to put out two tyres in one go, which is really? just a feature, yeah. 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 a pothole, a pothole in Mead. Um, so yeah, look, it, it, we we know from from the survey, we were obviously curious to see how many people had been affected, and so we we surveyed five thousand people, and sixteen percent of those people said that they themselves had had damage. Um, caused to the car, motorbike, or bike as a result of of the pothole of, mm. of hitting of, of, of hitting a pothole. Now, within that, sixty one percent reported that one or more of their tires had been punctured. Thirty five percent stating that the wheel itself, the alloy, probably had been damaged, uh, and twenty three percent said that the st- the steering alignment had been damaged, uh, and another seventeen percent saying they damaged the shock. Shock absorbers. So, mm. obviously, uh, you know, and, and many of your listeners will will know, will know what it's like once you you feel that pud and you hit that, uh, and you, you generally know quite soon afterwards that something has gone wrong and yeah. something has gone amiss. You were probably all right because you could have called EAA, but I think a lot of people go, Jamie, the idea of uh, two tires going at the one time. You've only one spare generally. Yeah, of course, and, and well, a lot of cars as well now come with mobility kits, so. Um, because these days people, car manufacturers like to save weight so you'll find that it's only when you go into the boot of the car that you have this uh, either can of gunk that you spray mm. into the wheel or you have uh, the little donut which is a donut sized tyre which isn't much uh, used to, to get you very far but yeah look and again without without too much of a plug it's why mm. uh, something like a membership is um, is useful but, but look it, it's uh, when it does when it does happen you know obviously there are things you can do and we would often always say that you, you should take evidence of the the pothole and, yeah. and contact the, the county council um about that because uh, and you know make it make a record of it especially if you've had damage to your own to your own wheel and you know there obviously there are other routes you can yeah. go well, this brings us it's, to the nub of the issue doesn't it uh, i mean why is this happening uh, apart from the obvious that you're running into a pothole but why is, is there a pothole there and why are there so many potholes on irish roads and why are the roads not being maintained and if it's because the roads aren't being maintained can you charge the council for the damage that was caused to your car 
Yeah, well, look, you can. Uh, you know, I did speak to a solicitor about this this morning, and, and you know, she uh, a draw the solicitor actually. She did know, you know, say that, that she has dealt with personal injury claims based on it. But you know, there are some some tricky areas within it. It has to be shown that the uh, that you know that the council had no didn't didn't attempt to repair it. Well, obviously, potholes can happen, mm. and they can happen quite soon. Mostly caused uh, by often trucks using minor roads where they you know rather than using motorways or or, or, or dual carriageways mm. often uh, that's that's what will pull apart a road poor weather conditions you know freezing etc can cause potholes it's whether the uh, the, the council hasn't um hasn't done enough or hasn't acted swiftly enough to to repair the damage and I that's think that's where it can yeah. and that's the thing in terms of liability isn't it uh, because um, the council isn't liable if it didn't know the pothole was there because potholes are going to occur that's just uh, an inevitability but uh, it's a question of whether they acted if it was reported uh, to them uh, and that comes back to the importance of reporting potholes to the council yeah it is and, and look it's also you know for other motors too, if if you do yeah. spot them, to maybe don't assume that someone else will. We're all trying to use the, the road, so it, you know if you do spot a pothole and it's safe to do so, do take a photograph of it and do send it on because because as 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 you rightly said mm. there, if the council don't know about it, then it's not they they won't necessarily be liable for any damage. Mm. Uh, are, are the roads better than uh, they once were? Do you think? Well, sir, certainly, certainly, I would say yes. Mm. Um, I think you know from from. Certainly, around our local area, they've improved a lot, but would, they still do get torn up, especially I think by um, by trucks who might take other routes, as I said, rather than using some of the main routes. That's where they start to suffer. But like, I, look, I think it's night and day from where we were twenty, thirty years ago. I certainly remember roads being in a lot worse condition. Um, but look, the other thing is as well as, as technology has changed too. If you look at some of the modern cars and the people are choosing bigger alloy wheels, you know, 17, 18, 19-inch wheels and low-profile tyres, and, and some of them look like elastic bands around the alloy, they don't have as much forgiveness and, and give when you hit a pothole. So the, you will often see greater punctures nowadays because of the choice people make on the wheels that they have in their cars. All right. Okay. I didn't know that. Um, it's a long time since I've got a, a puncture uh, and uh, I'd have thought that had to do with better tyres. Yeah, it is. Look, it, it, you know, as I said, if the, the modern tyre is, is a very clever thing, but if there isn't enough uh, depth in, in the tyre, then when it hits a pothole, it's uh, it, there's obviously not enough shock and protection between it and the alloy wheel behind it. So, mm-hmm. um, so in a lot of cases, if you if you have if some people with older cars with uh, less flashy alloy wheels are going to um, are going to uh, do better, uh, and and yeah. you know that mm-hmm. was that was what what happened to me. Uh, I, I the you're, car I was driving, my car, you're uh, flashy. Big, <laughs> I have a flash gift, yeah, that had right. big alloy wheels, yeah. and uh, yeah. it, mm-hmm. I, I suffered as a result. But look, all right, you there see, you there I fall into the other category. I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Paddy, we we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, for Take joining care, us. Uh, thank you very much, Paddy Cummin, as head of communications with AA Ireland, uh, and uh, some calls and comments coming to us, Pat and Dunleer and touch about teachers asking if teachers realise how lucky they are. He says, your guest this morning was crying about the cost of living. 
but it is uh, the same for everyone and there are many suffering a lot more than teachers are. Do they not realise they're a protected species in this country? People lost jobs during the pandemic but not the teachers. Uh, They got paid when they were at home. Who will pay for their pay rise? The rest of us will. They always seem to want more money and the bargaining tool in all of it is the students. In my opinion, uh, Pat says the teachers are greedy. Thanks indeed uh, for that, Pat. I'm sure it won't be appreciated. And I'm sure you'll appreciate it as uh, the job of a, a trade union, regardless of who their members are, to represent their members. Uh, and I'm sure that all trade unions will be looking for pay increases because of the increase in the cost of living. Paddy Duffy says an observation. Uh, it is often said that Ireland is a wealthy country, but I say that Ireland is a country for the wealthy. When COVID struck, the government deemed that €350 Euro was the least that someone could survive on. Yet, people who are on the dole are receiving just over 200. And another thing, how has it come to pass that people who have a job are living in poverty? Two-income families can't buy a home. Hospital waiting lists have never been longer. And the Secretary-General of the Department of Health, Robert Watt, is paid 294 1,920 euro a year or 24,576 67 euros a month or 5,656 euros a week. This is some republic isn't it? Asks Paddy Duffy. Well, thanks for your text. We leave others to respond to you, Paddy. But as I say, thanks for making contact. Michael Reed on LMFM. One in four is launching new research into the experience of 15 child sexual abuse survivors on their journey through the criminal justice system. Let's speak to Naomi Gold, who's the author of this report, The Victim Experience in Focus, which is to be launched this afternoon. Good morning to you, Naomi, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I'm sure people have been taken aback listening to the news bulletins uh, this morning uh, about one of your findings, which is uh, that nearly half of the people you spoke to, nearly half of the 15 victims you spoke to had been uh, abused by a member of their own family. Good morning, Michael. Thank you very much for having me on uh, your show this morning. Yes, that is correct. So out of the 15 participants, 33% of those reported experiencing instances of sexual abuse from more than one perpetrator throughout their lifetime. And from that number then, um, the percentage was just over 46% um, had experienced abuse from a family member. The same figure, over 46%, was from somebody outside of their family. And a figure of approximately 7% was uh, they was from the abuse suffered from uh, clergy or religious orders. Mm, which may be of surprise to people because they're uh, the stories uh, that get most of the coverage, I suppose. Uh, most of uh, the abuse uh, that happens in, in this country is generally unreported, I take it. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, that's correct. And, you know, it, what was significant in relation to those particular figures from the participants is that not all of that, all, not all of those victimisations had been reported to the Gardaí. Mm. Okay, uh, and when they were reported to the Gardaí, uh, there was different experiences uh, depending on who you were speaking to in, in terms of how the complaints were dealt with. Yes, that's that's exactly true. There was, uh, you know, we sp- I spoke to the participants around how they felt uh, the process of making a statement went for them, as well as the process of the waiting for a decision back from the DPP. 
different experiences were reported, which ranged, I guess, from the participants feeling really believed by the officer in charge, feeling at ease when participants said that, you know, in 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 the interview room, they felt most at ease. Um, some participants reported feeling unburdened, you know, that they had finally been able to lay out the abuse, tell this person what had happened to them, and that this person was then going to be able to go and do something about it. I guess in, in contradiction to that, there were other reports where, I guess, there was uh, some participants described there was, um, I guess, inappropriate conduct from an investigating member. One participant who had tried to report, I guess, multiple victimizations, was told that she can't be blaming everybody. And um, so we did see, I guess, uh, different sides of, of mm. the Garda experience. And I think it's very important that we acknowledge both sides, both the good and the bad, because there's learning opportunities in both. We need to build on the experiences that victims report feeling believed and heard and supported by members of Angarda Chiacana. And we need to work to address the difficulties that arise when people do not feel like they have been treated with compassion or dignity. How difficult is it for somebody to go to the guards? Because you'd have to assume that most people who have uh, experienced sexual uh, abuse don't go to the guards. Uh, I suppose we're still waiting uh, on the next savvy report. But Mm -hmm. uh, last estimate uh, was that one in four people had suffered uh, some form of sexual abuse in their lifetime, hence uh, the name of your organisation, One in Four. Uh, But uh, the courts would be in undated with cases uh, if all of the people who had suffered some form of uh, abuse uh, Mm -hmm. took a complaint. Uh, So is it very difficult to take that step for people? From the evidence that was put forward in this research, absolutely. So I was really interested in kind of examining the participants' decision to report. The crimes that they discussed in relation to this research had happened you know, several, several years ago. And I was really interested in what was the catalyst that made them decide to finally report and what barriers had been in place prior to them reporting. So several participants kind of cited their own mental health as being a real catalyst in having to report. One participant in particular said that if he didn't do it, he knew he wouldn't. He would be dead by the time he got to 50 if he hadn't uh, spoken about out about the abuse he suffered. Um, I guess another motivating factor for people coming forward was concern for other potential victims or a desire for their abuse to be acknowledged. Um, on, the, on the flip side of that then, you know, I really seen that from the evidence of participants, I guess a desire to protect their family really was a, a kind of deterrent to reporting. It held quite a lot of people back, concern for family members or fear of the repercussions from mm-hmm. family members. I have to say, I was absolutely uh, appalled uh, reading the experience uh, of one woman in the Irish Times this morning who uh, took the decision to go to the guards to make a, a complaint uh, only for a, a member of Angarda Shiakana to be flirting with her when she was complaining to him that she'd been raped. That's correct, yes. So a participant in this research described you know, a very inappropriate conduct from an investigating member whilst um, or a statement taking was a statement was being taken place. Um, I mean, this really kind of highlights the need for members of Angarda Shiakana, particularly those who are tasked with statement taking process in relation to sexual violence and domestic violence, that they really be aware 
of the implications of, of trauma, um, particularly sexual violence trauma, and how to how to approach victims, how to speak with victims, and how to um, take a statement that in in a dignified manner. Okay, um, going to the guards is one thing that doesn't automatically result in a conviction. It, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't necessarily result in a court case. Uh, and you've spoken to uh, some of these 15 survivors who, uh, despite taking a, a complaint, uh, didn't have their cases proceed to uh, court. Yes, yes, that's true. So out of the 15 participants who I interviewed through focus group discussions and individual interviews in this research, five of those participants their complaint did not make it past the DPP decision. So when we examined, um, I guess, that the prosecution process, so the time in between um, a victim reporting to the Gardaí and then that decision coming back, the average approximate time between 10 participants was 2.2 years. And the participants reported that being an extremely challenging time for them, um, feeling really anxious that it kind of replicated emotions that had existed during the abuse, you know, not knowing what was going to happen next, not knowing when it was going to stop. And in particular for those five participants of the research, it, they never got the opportunity, I guess, to have their their case heard in a court. It didn't proceed that far. And they were really clear when they expressed, you know, feeling let down, feeling disappointed. They felt not believed or dismissed. And one participant spoke that he had just wanted this to be allowed to proceed to court, where the accused person would have to get up in the morning put on a suit, go to court and to, I guess, be held accountable. Um, you know, I guess from, mm. from doing this research, uh, it's really been highlighted to me that, you know, justice is a broad term and it means different things to different people, but certainly feeling heard um, and feeling believed and feeling like the person has been held accountable, whether or not that results in a conviction, is something that was really reiterated as being very important for the participants. Mm. I imagine your work is very important because it'll highlight uh, some of uh, the failings in the system as well as uh, the positives. Uh, But perhaps uh, there's lessons to be learned from where we are failing. And uh, I believe uh, you'll be making a number of recommendations on how we can improve on that. Yes, yes, that's right. So, um, I mean, there's a number of recommendations set out in the report, but one in particular, I guess, based on the, the... testimony from the participants was certainly the specialised trauma-informed training that really should inform interview approaches within Angarda Shilkana. This is something that has been raised um, in, in other research in recent years and certainly I think uh, has been already uh, prompted by the Department of Justice as something that they want to work on. Um, also a code of conduct for the manner of, of questioning witnesses during cross-examination, again particularly for sexual and domestic violence um, crime. Um, And also uh, there was, you know, it was highlighted throughout the research again, some of the participants had engaged with the professional kind of support service or advocacy service prior to to their interaction with the criminal justice system. Others hadn't. And it was really reiterated, you know, the benefit of engaging with a professional service, somebody independent and impartial to provide support and information. it's really clear the voice of of certain participants here that they felt very alone in the process Um, and and I think we can do better than that. Okay. 
Well, if uh, people do feel uh, that uh, they'd like professional help, obviously one in four uh, is there. Um, you'll be adding uh, to our knowledge and experience and uh, perhaps uh, changing or help uh, to change uh, how the judicial system deals uh, with people who've fallen victim uh, to child sexual uh, abuse uh, and indeed uh, that's all based on the 15 people that uh, you've been speaking to who have survived such circumstances. I'm sorry, Naomi, were you going to say something there? No, just no. to reiterate again, yeah, yeah. this is this is the, their their voices and um, you know, I'm delighted that we were able to get this opportunity through the funding from the Irish Human Rights and Equality mm. Commission to really put forward the, the voices and the experience of victims mm. um, in Ireland. Uh, a positive thing for the 15 people as well, I'm sure, to have participated. Yes, the, the feedback that I've gotten is that it was something that was very, um, I guess, cathartic um, and they, they, they reported feeling really seen in this research process. Uh, particularly if they didn't feel seen, I guess, in, in the criminal justice one. Yeah, OK. Well, it's the voices of those people uh, exactly, uh, which is uh, the importance of your work. Naomi, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Thank you much very appreciate much, it. That's uh, Naomi Gould, who's the advocacy case manager with One and Four, also the author of uh, this report, which is being launched today. It's uh, The Victim Experience in Focus. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, last week, uh, the government uh, announced it's uh, to make another €13 million Euro available to pig farmers. Uh, that's to be added to the €7 million that was previously uh, announced. And uh, this be, has been welcomed by Senator Erin McGreehan, Fianna Fáil Senator, who's on the line. A very good morning to you. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us, uh, Senator McGreen. A total of €20 million. Euro. Uh, undoubtedly, uh, this will be be welcome to some degree. It's a, a lot of money, isn't it? It's a huge amount of money, Michael, yes. And, you know, in February, the government, after recognising the huge difficulties that the farmer families in the pig sector were having, the minister worked with the IFA and allocated the original £7 million. Um, we all know, Michael, that, you know, since then, things have changed. We're now in a wartime situation and, and costs on, on, on all production right across every sector and, and indeed in our, in our home, homes as well is going up. Uh, so last week, um, after consulting with the IFA look, with, and, their nas- and the National Pig, um, the, their, the, uh, the Pig uh, Committee, they announced that there would be a, a further 13 million. And that equates to approximately 90,000 uh, per pig, uh, um, commercial pig um, farming family um, across the country. It is a huge amount of money. Um, and you know, the government have recognised that those massive pressures mm. that the farmer families are going undergoing, yeah. and um, hopefully this will be the cushion um, to get them back to. Well, that's know, the big question. Years. That's the big question, isn't it? It's a lot of money, but it, it, is it enough? Well, it, it's it's the money that's going to be there. It's going to hopefully, it, it, I believe, will cushion them throughout the, the next the next while, and then obviously the government are. Always engaging with IFA, always engaging with the with the pig sector, um, and indeed every sector across the, that agri the agri um, industry. So you know there's always negotiations going on. But this is the, this is a quite a substantial amount of money um, given to farming families right across the country, um, and you know we know, we all know that you know, prices and issues in in, in mm. Okay. Every agri sector are cyclical. But 7%, um, 7% have already gone under. There's a, a chance that between 20 and 
uh, of the existing pig farmers, those who, who are still farming, uh, could also go out of business. And this is a fifth of what the government was asked for. The government was asked for $100 million, wasn't it? And this funding is one-fifth of that, as I say, at just $20 billion. Yeah, so the government, the IFA put, a propose, put forward a proposal of a 100 million support package. Um, it would be a 50-50 private-public partnership and 50 million of that was state money um, and the other 50 million was a long-term mortgage um, stretched out over 14 to 15 years. So it wasn't at 50 million that, um, that the, the IFA have asked for. That would equate to you know, nearly 160,000, 70,000 per pig enterprise um, the farmer that the government saw that huge that huge support package and worked with the with the IFA now we can say that you know that this type of extensive plan would need an awful lot of extra work done um, to make sure that it would be approved it would need the financial the legal and procedural issues all ironed out Michael and at the minute um, it was about you know swift it was about fast and getting getting money to the farming families as quick as possible. The 100 million support package would have been, you know, months away in the making, to be honest, because it would need to, you know, have that mortgage, that mortgage approval from the, the investment, the, the ISAF, the, the Irish Strategic Investment Fund. And that, that as you know, would, would require an awful, lot of, an awful lot of work to get that through. This is about getting cash getting money to the cash-trapped pig farmers. I think that's really, really important. It, it is obviously always under under review. And it's not to say that the, the, the government aren't looking at you know, the long-term usage of the, okay. th- those proposals, but it is, um, it is something that we need to, you know, make sure that we have cash okay. to the pig farmers as soon as possible, okay. and this is one way. Okay, stay, stay with me, if you will, please, uh, Senator McGreehan. Uh, Tim Cullinan is uh, the president of uh, the Irish Farmers Association and has uh, been listening uh, throughout. And uh, a very good morning to you, Tim Cullinan, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Do you accept what you've been hearing there, that this was the quickest way of getting money in people's pockets? Yeah, uh, first of all, good morning, Michael, and good morning, Senator there as well. And look, I suppose, look, what I want to say firstly here is what we're trying to protect here, right, the 250 or almost 300 pig farmers. And, and as you rightly pointed out, the 7% of those farmers have exited the sector already. And Chagas's own figures is, which is the state body, the risk of us losing anything up to another 20, 30%, so, which is uh, very, very worrying. And I suppose, look, um, I always acknowledge, you know, any in, in direct aid that government is going to put forward to any sector. But I suppose, you know, we have to put in context the, the enormity of, of what we're dealing with here. You know, and again, quoting Chagas figures, uh, the figure is clear. The average family pig farm, five to six hundred thousand, is losing somewhere in the region of 50 to 60,000 per month. And I will accept you know, the price of pig meat has increased by 26 cent a kilo over the last number of weeks. But the problem we have is, again, uh, massive uh, feed inflation to the tune of 126% is what we're dealing with here. So on the very day that we, we farmers received an increase in the price they were receiving for their pig meat, the price of feed went up to the tune of 40 euros a tonne on the, actually the same day. So, you know, just... The problem is still there, and I suppose, look, um, is it enough? Um, I, I, as I say, I accept 
like there's um there's a payment now of ninety thousand per farmer and I acknowledge that totally but there is a, a serious thing in the tail here. The minister has come forward with a proposal, uh, an, un, an extraordinary proposal, of um, asking farmers to reduce their herds by 10% to be able to acquire this money. And, uh, you know, to think this through, uh, if a farmer was to make, a pig farmer was to make that decision this morning, it would be 10 months before that would have an impact on, on the marketplace. And, you know, if the marketplace is not going to improve in the next nine to ten months, well, then you know, the, the, the sector is over. And why a minister would come forward with a proposal to inhibit a farmer from gaining what we all believe and experts believe the market will have improved in ten months' time, you know, to me, that is the core issue. I'd like to know why the minister has come forward with that proposal. So it's the very wrong thing to do at a time when farmers mm. are struggling to survive within the sector. Would you care to answer that question, Senator McGreen? Thank you. Um, yeah, I thought the majority, unfortunately, the majority of, of pig farming family enterprises that I know have had to reduce their numbers already. Um, and it's not a, you know, it's, it's, I suppose it's to make sure that there is an equalised um, reduction across all of the of the commercial pig pig out, uh, um, farms, it is. I, I absolutely accept what what Tim is saying there that there there could be a, a market a market disturbance in ten months time and, and when prices increase. But I think it's really important that we equalise that equalise that that reduction across all herds, um, to make sure that there is that that's fair um, fair for particularly the smaller. The smaller pig, pig um, enterprises, but going back to what Tim has, was saying there a while ago, there is a huge onus on the processors to move towards uh, um, the EU average price of pig meat. Um, you know, and I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure Tim will probably correct me better, but I think there were, were 30 cents um, below any, the EU average at the minute, and that you know there is an upward movement, but we do need to make sure that we move towards an EU average. Um, uh, for our pig meat because uh, we, uh, Tim will agree that mm, we have I'm sure Tim Cullen will agree well, with I, I, prices, I, I yeah. just want to come back in there and make mm, the clear yeah. point again and, and, and Senator look you're talking about equalisation of, of uh, a reduction of 10% what has happened here unfortunately 7% of our colleagues had to leave the industry because they couldn't uh, afford to survive and we're looking down the barrel of a gun uh, if something doesn't change here, that could increase to 30%. But to ask all farmers, to ask all farmers to reduce by 10% in the current climate, in my mind, is absolutely ridiculous. And you know, this is something I clearly told the minister it was the wrong thing to do, clearly told him this. And I'm saying that I think, Senator, you need to go back to the minister today in time to revert this part of the decision he has made. So what we're about here is... We need to remember uh, there's 250,000 or 250 farmers, but there's 8,000 jobs downstream and upstream of the farm gate, up and down rural Ireland. And this is what we're trying to protect here. And uh, a sector that has output of 1.7 billion per year, now almost a million in exports, uh, or a bit, sorry, a billion in exports, and total output of 1.7 billion. That's what we're trying to protect here. And... Uh, Going with a reduction element in this is absolutely, uh, I think, ridiculous at the moment. And uh, mm-hmm. we've seen in the past in, in the beef sector, in the beam scheme back in twenty or twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen, when the government tried to imp- implement a reduction there, and we're still suffering the crisis or the 
the the disaster that that was and mm. uh, to date in the region of 20 million that hasn't been paid out to farmers and actually uh, proposals there to take money back okay. from farmers at the moment in the beef sector and we do not want another disaster like that on our hands in the, in the next year. Mary McGrain, will you take that message back to government? Absolutely, and I'm sure Tim has has very well, and he was at the Agriculture Committee last week, I believe, and, and highlighted those issues. I think the, the, the main point of this is, Michael, um, the government have recognised the massive pressures, have worked with Tim and his colleagues in IFA mm. and the National Pig Committee. Um, you know, there has been um, 235 farmers already have applied. Most of those, those sta- at that stage, have got their the twenty the original twenty thousand, mm. and and okay. the further monies will follow. But but um, how, how, how long how long will they be able to survive? Uh, and I think that's the fundamental question here, isn't Absolutely. it, Tom Cullinan? And does it does does it come down to what farmers have in their bank accounts? Because you're talking about losing fifty to sixty thousand euro a, a month, uh, and then you'll be getting this package of up to €90,000, so you're covering, what, uh, the next month and a half at best, uh, and you're talking about a crisis that will run for eight, nine months. So what happens for the rest of that time? Does it depend yeah. uh, uh, on your reserves, in other words? Yeah, absolutely, Michael. It depends on a number of, of areas, you know, what the situation is with each individual farmer with their financial institution, how they are on feed credit as well, and so we need to be careful around there as well because we don't want to lose... Uh, a male in, in, in this crisis either. So that's why the proposal we put forward was very straightforward where pig farmers are willing to put forward uh, 50 million of their own money in the in, in a levy, a statutory levy that will be signed up to, uh, would have to bring primary legislation through the doll to ensure that is the security for that loan and willing to pay it back as I say over a 10 or 15 year period. Now that's how serious the farmers and the sector take this crisis in in a way of dealing with it. And that's what we we still want our government to do and to co-finance that as well. And, um, you know, as as close as possible to the 50 million was the proposal. Two 50 millions, as the Senator pointed out there at the start of the interview, that we were willing to put 150 million on the table with a view to paying it back over a 15-year period to ensure the viability of the sector and to ensure the viability of 8,000 jobs within the country. And as I pointed out recently as well, you know, if there was another intel coming into the country this morning providing six or 7,000 mm-hmm. jobs, we would have every minister in the country you know, make our okay. being, yep. issuing a press release about what was of happening course, here. Yeah, yeah. We have a sector mm-hmm. that is equal to intel, intel here in this country at the moment and we want to do everything in our power to ensure this sector survives this crisis that it's going through at the moment. Yeah, well, you've left us in no doubt uh, about how serious it is, Tim. Uh, maybe uh, Senator McGreen uh, would like to respond just to conclude a uh, final word, in other words, please. No, I absolutely know how serious this is for, for, for farming families across the country. There is, we're at, a, we're at, we're at such a incredible difficult time for, for businesses in general and indeed our, our farmers' families. Um, we know that um, there are the challenges, acutely aware of those challenges. Um, and we, we, I go back to, you know, it's not that the government have said no straight off and the Irish Strategic Investment Fund, uh, Fund and those levies. It's not something that can happen straight away. And I'm, I'm hoping that something like that could happen in the future. The, prop, the thing is now is make sure that 
that money is paid out to our farming families as quick as possible. Um, And I will be absolutely in support support and working for him um, advocating for that. And also Mm -hmm. continuing the conversation and and, and keeping the department up to date on the exact... You know, on the gr- on the ground issues, and and Tim does a really good job at doing that and advocating okay. for All his right. farmers. As I say, I'm over time. I have to leave there, but thank you both uh, indeed for your time and for joining us on the program uh, this morning. Fianna Fáil Senator Erin McGreehan and Tim Cullinan, who's uh, the president of the IFA, the Irish Farmers Association. Michael Reed on LMFM. You'd wonder why uh, the Minister for Health is looking for an external assessment of what happened in the Department of Health in the run-up to the appointment of uh, Dr Tony Houlihan to a post uh, research post in Trinity College in Dublin uh, and why uh, he has to go elsewhere to find out more about uh, this secondment. Uh, let's speak uh, to David Cullinan, Sinn Féin's uh, spokesperson on health and uh, a TD for Waterford. Good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. Are, are you wondering why the Minister has to go elsewhere to get information about this uh, when it was all handled by his Secretary-General, uh, who undoubtedly he's been talking to, but it, it, it goes further than that, as we all know, because Robert Watt, one of the highest-paid civil servants in the country, has given a written report on what happened to the Minister. Yes, as a short answer, Michael, it is, it's very strange, and the whole process was, was quite bizarre, to be quite honest. And when we learned that Dr Houlihan was leaving his post and moving to Trinity, I, like many people, wished him well because... Obviously, he was somebody that has done huge work during COVID and has huge respect within the public health sphere. And most reasonable people will obviously want him to stay in the public service. So I welcomed his move to Trinity. Uh, and my expectancy was that he was leaving the department for good, which is the case. He was, he was taking up a new post with Trinity and obviously they would pay the salary and the wages. It turned out a couple of days later that this was a secondment. Uh, and that came on the back of information that came into the public domain by the Irish Independent and that his full salary, which is in excess of what the top ceiling salary would be for a professor in Trinity, uh, was going to be maintained for a couple of years. And that in itself was quite unusual because the minister wasn't informed of the details. But then it transpired that it wasn't just his salary, that there would be a €2 million allocation. And this was, for me, far beyond a HR issue, a human resources issue. This was a substantial policy investment that the department was going to make on foot, it would seem, of some funding from the Health Research Board as well. Mm. And they themselves were saying that they were kept in the dark and weren't aware of the process. But in any event, this €2 million Euro was to pay not just for the salary, but also for travel expenses, for professional fees, and I would imagine associated staff. Mm. So for the Minister to be kept in the dark of a €2 million Euro annual spend and for that to be reduced to a HR issue I think is unacceptable and I don't know why the minister yeah, not just the uh, minister kept, for, uh, kept yeah. in the loop but, but I have to say that when he was made aware of it uh, and certainly made aware of the details he certainly didn't push back he certainly didn't ask any hard questions in fact of most of the media outlets that he did immediately after this controversy he doubled down and praised the process which raised very fundamental questions in relation to his authority in the department and also within government, because it took others in government to step in and pause the process. 
which has now led, obviously, to this external review that you mentioned. Yeah, well, it's not uh, just that the minister was in the dark. I mean, the Taoiseach said that uh, this was such a big issue, uh, it involved so much money, that it was a matter for government, or should have been a matter for government. Uh, Robert Watt seems to have a different view and seems to be saying, mind your own business, this is what I'm being paid to do. Well, first of all, I wouldn't accept that if I was Minister for Health. And the minister should have made it very, very clear from day one that there was major problems with the lack of transparency, that it was unacceptable that he was kept in the dark, because this wasn't just any secondment. In fact, it's difficult to describe this as a secondment at all, given that this wasn't a temporary uh, arrangement. This was a permanent departure. Very unusual, to say the least. But given that this was the CMO, one of the most high-profile people within the Department of Health, of course the minister should have been aware of it. But then when it transferred that this was a €2 million Euro annual allocation, of course the Minister should have been made aware of that. We have to have fair procedures in place and robust procedures when it comes to public appointments and issues in relation to pay at the top. As you know, there was a cosy deal done uh, to move Robert Watt into the Department of Health and he received a pay increase of over €80,000. Now, that wasn't his doing. That was obviously uh, part of an arrangement that was made with senior politicians. But that culture of making those type of arrangements, uh, stepping outside of uh, established processes and procedures, uh, very common, I think, uh, at the top of the public service, is not what people want. So we have to have fair procedures, and those established procedures have to be followed. And I'm conscious as well that there are much, much bigger challenges in healthcare, and I would much rather Mm. be focused on the 1.3 million people on health waiting lists and what's happening in emergency departments, that's where the attention of health spokespeople and the minister should be. But with this controversy, it has to be said, is about a lack of transparency. So it is important, but it was entirely of the department's own making and compounded by the fact that the minister seemed to miss what everybody else saw, that he was kept in the dark on such a substantial amount of taxpayers' money. The bottom line is, uh, Michael, you cannot have very senior civil servants signing off on millions of euro taxpayers' money without any ministerial or government approval. That simply should not be the way it is. And I just don't believe that this reasonably could be reduced to a simple human resources issue when you consider the amount of money involved. Mm. Uh, the doll is in recess, of course. Uh, the doll didn't sit last week and won't sit this week. It'll be Wednesday of next week, I think, uh, before business resumes. But I'm sure this will be back on the agenda then, won't it? And the Department of Health, uh, the Health Committee being one of them, and also the Finance Committee, which I understand is seeking to arrange uh, hearings as well. Uh, and the interesting part about all of uh, this is that the Secretary-General at the Department of Health was before the Oireachtas Health Committee last Wednesday, or Wednesday week, I should say, and had an opportunity to answer all of the questions in relation to the process and the procedures that were followed or not followed. Uh, I was one of those that asked questions. Many other members of the committee did. He did not take the opportunity to answer the questions, provided no clarity whatsoever. And then in his report to the minister, acknowledged that, yes, there was communication failures. But the department and senior officials had to take um, uh, account of that as well, um, and, and acknowledge that they were part of that because he was before the Oireachtas Health Committee. Uh, he had a chance to answer the questions that were put. Uh, he could have cleared a lot of the issues up. Uh, it would have still raised questions, but at least it wouldn't have taken FOIs or mm-hmm. uh, requests from the media to get information and from opposition politicians that the, the information was seeping out. He had an opportunity to clear up exactly what the process was. He didn't 
take it. So for that reason, he has to come back before the Oireachtas Health Committee and he has to be told in no uncertain terms that you cannot be signing off on millions of euros taxpayers' money. In my view, uh, like what happened here or what could potentially have happened here without ministerial sign-off or approval, it's simply not acceptable. And the fact that the minister hasn't publicly stated that as of yet, for me, is worrying. It seems others in government saw this issue uh, and admitted the minister completely. And I've said this a few times over the last week. I think that senior civil servants on a whole range of issues are running rings around the Minister for Health. You have to have authority. You have to have political authority. You have to be in control. And yes, civil servants have to implement the policy of government, but you have to set the agenda and you have to uh, set out what's right and what's not right. And I think the Minister for Health failed in his duty over the last number of weeks. And as you said earlier on, there's huge respect, a huge public respect uh, for Tony Houlihan. And I think a lot of people are upset at the idea that his public service has ended so abruptly and mired in controversy. Yes, and, and I would be one of those that would uh, have the same feeling because I, I was at a, on a, a call with Tony Houlihan and other members of the Health Committee uh, a day before the story broke in relation to the €2 million Euro, uh, funding, annual funding, and many of us acknowledged his work, and, and I'm on the public record as acknowledging that he is a very fine public servant, that his knowledge in public health is obviously second to none, I think the post in Trinity itself isn't the issue and never was the issue. But at the same time, when you have senior civil servants who step outside of established procedures, it would seem, and obviously we have to wait and see what the external review does to be fair to everybody involved, but certainly there was very unusual characteristics in relation to this economy. Like I don't reasonably think that anybody could reasonably assert that this in and of itself was a secondment, given that Dr. Houlihan has said he was stepping away on a permanent basis and wasn't coming back. So all of those issues maybe were not of uh, Dr. Houlihan's making, but certainly were of the making of senior officials in the department. He has been caught up in this and is a casualty of it. Uh, and I regret that because I think it would have been better if he stayed in the public system. But at the end of the day, fair procedures and robust procedures and established procedures have to be applied without fear or favour. And whether it's somebody as high profile as Dr. Houlihan or a politician or a minister or a, a, low, a, a lower grade civil servant, the rules have to apply the same to everybody. Okay, well, as you say, uh, when the doll resumes uh, next week after the Easter break, uh, there will be a lot of focus on this, uh, how all of that pans out uh, in terms of responsibility and accountability. God knows, uh, but the public service has lost Dr. Tony Hulham. David Cullinan, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, David Cullinan, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health. Call Michael now, 041-983-2000. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. I love how well your kitchen turned out. Where did you get that colour paint? I got it in Murtis. They have a great selection of colours and their own tinting machine, so if you don't find the colour you want, they'll make it up for you. And the new sitting room curtains, where did they come from? I got them in Murtis. They have a full hand-sewn curtain-making service upstairs. They came out, measured, made up and fitted the lot. The wallpaper for the hallway? No, no, let me guess. You got it in Murtis? I got it in Murtis. For everything you need to transform your home, if you want it, you can get it in Murtis Fairgreen, just off Trinity Street or see We don't want to know how messy your car is or what 90s boy band you've still got on repeat. That's none of our business. 
but at Board Gosh Energy, your boiler is our business. There's no one better for your boiler than Ireland's largest services provider with over 35 years' experience. Visit boardgoshenergy.ie forward slash services to book your next boiler service at a time that suits you. Board Gosh Energy. Imagine a better way. T's and C's apply. The Glenside Hotel Drada are delighted to be back serving their famous carvery lunch. Delicious roast dinners available Monday to Friday from 12.30 to 3pm and all day Sunday until 7pm. The Glenside is the perfect spot for midweek roast or a hearty Sunday carvery. A delicious range of dishes for adults and children await you at the Glenside. At Centra, we're at the heart of the community. So we go to great lengths to help you live your best life. Fresh bread, finest meals, fantastic offers, all the good feels. Not to mention a fabulous wide range of our own brand favourites. And as for off-licence, we've been to the four corners of the world so you can enjoy the best wines and beers locally. At Centra, we've got everything you need. Centra. Live every day. Enjoy it sensibly. Michael at lmfm.ie The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid. Managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As always, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Patrick Gill of Trim Garda Station joins us for the report this week and we're going to begin in Summer Hill last Wednesday and a burglary that Garda are hoping you may get some information about. Indeed, Michael, and good morning to yourself and indeed your listeners. So, Guardian Trim, they're investigating a burglary that took place at a house in the Ballantohy area of Summerhill on Wednesday last, the 13th of April, between 7 and 7.45pm. Now, Guardian believe a grey 152 or 162 MEAD registration Audi A4 may have been involved. So, we're appealing for any information or anyone who may have information or dash cam footage that may assist us in our investigation to please contact us here in Trim on 046 9481540. OK, we go to and uh, another burglary to report on. This happened on Friday of last week. It did indeed, Michael. Yes, so Guardian Dunshockland are investigating a burglary incident that took place in the Trevitt area of Dunshockland on Friday last, the 15th of April 2022, between 6pm and midnight. Now, entry to the property was gained to, by a door at the rear of the property, where considerable damage was caused, but thankfully nothing was taken. The Guardi are looking for any witnesses in the area at that time, and in particular those who may have noticed any persons or vehicles acting suspiciously, who may have dashed footage also as well, to assist uh, Guardi and Ashburn with their investigations by calling them on 01 80 10 600. OK, we've uh, a number of uh, stories now uh, which uh, will tell of items being stolen from vehicles. Uh, the first of uh, these in Kells last week. Yes, indeed, Michael. Unfortunately, this is happening with vehicles that are both locked and unlocked. The first one we're going to is in Kells, County Meath, that took place overnight, 13th and 14th of April last. So they're investigating a theft of tools which were taken from a van in the St. Column Hill Village area of Kells between 7pm on Wednesday the 13th and 8am on Thursday the 14th of April 2022. So anyone who may have any information or assist us in our investigation, so please contact Kells Garda Station on 046 92 And two similar incidents then in Dundalk. Yes, so these both happened in the Rampart Lane area of, of uh, Dundalk Town. So they at least have happened over a 24-hour period between 8pm on the 16th and 8pm on the 17th of April last. So 
So anyone who may have information or witnessed any suspicious activity during this time in the area, are please ask, ask the police call from Dock Garda Station on 042 93 Okay, and that probably will give all of us some food for thought. Indeed, uh, you've uh, some advice to offer our listeners about this sort of thing. Yes, absolutely, Michael. For most people, naturally enough, a car is generally the second largest purchase we ever make. And it's therefore important to protect your investment by keeping it safe and secure. Now, on average each year, there are a number of vehicles that are broken into a region of thousands, in fact. And albeit they've damaged in many cases, some are never actually recovered, the vehicles. And similar figure applies to, indeed, tests from vehicle incidents in, in, uh, on a national and local and national level as well. So theft from cars and other vehicles is a common crime in Ireland today, unfortunately. Ideally, property should be not left attended, unattended in cars or other vehicles. However, if you must, please bear in mind the following advice. So ensure all windows and doors and doors are closed and locked. Ensure that your alarm or mobiliser are set, that is the, the, the piece of technology in our key fob. Do not leave property on view inside your vehicle. Do not leave cash, credit or debit cards, checkbooks or any other valuable items inside your vehicle. Also be particularly careful with laptops, mobile phones and other small electronically items as the data they contain may be very attractive to any potential thieves. Do not place property under your seat if it's not in a secure location and can often be seen. If you must store property in your vehicle, place it in the boot, but do so at a location other than the area where you intend to park. And avoid parking in isolated places and at night time, park in a well-lit area. Consider retracting as well. Some vehicles have the facility to retract your wing mirrors as flush as possible to avoid criminal damage. For any further advice or ways to secure your vehicle, you can find it out on Garda.ie. Garda Patrick Gill of Trim Garda Station. Thank you indeed. We return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time next Tuesday. Now, let me read you a letter to... Pope Francis. Uh, it's a letter that was written to the Pope from the commander of uh, the 36th Separate Marine Br- Brigade, Major Serhiv Volnya, who is fighting for Ukraine in Mariupol. And he says, Your Holiness, Pope Francis, I'm not a Catholic, I'm Orthodox, I believe in God, and I know that light always overcomes darkness. I've not seen your appeals to the world, and I've not read all your last statements. I've been fighting for more than 50 days in uh, full surroundings, and all I have time for is fierce battle for every metre of the city surrounded by the enemy. I'm a warrior. I'm an officer who took an oath of allegiance to his country, and I'm ready to fight to the end, despite the overwhelming force of the enemy, despite the inhumane conditions on the battlefield, constant artillery and rocket fire and lack of water, food and medicine. You have probably seen a lot in your life, but I am sure that we have never seen what is happening in Mariupol because that's what the hell looks like on earth. He went on uh, to say that he couldn't possibly describe all of the horrors uh, that he had seen. Women with children and babies live in bunkers at the factory and hungry and cold every day under the sight of enemy aircraft. Uh, The wounded die every day because there is no medicine, no water, no food. And he says, the time has come when prayers are not the only thing, help save them. After the bombing of the drama theatre, no one has faith in the Russian occupiers. Bring the truth to the world. Evacuate people and save their lives from Satan, who wants to burn all living creatures. As I say, that's the commander of one of the brigades in Mariupol fighting the Russians, writing to Pope Francis. People from all over the world, pilgrims, may the grace of God give us more comfort in the suffering may nobody be abandoned in spite of the wars may 
we have reconciliation. I underline reconciliation. What Jesus did at Calvary with his resurrection is reconciling all of us with God, with God and with us. Reconciliation. God overcame the spirit of darkness. Let us align ourselves to his designs of peace and justice. I would like to thank all of those of you who have sent me messages of Easter. I'm very grateful. May God, through the Virgin Mary, reward each one of you with peace, uh, Pope Francis, uh, speaking through the voice of a Vatican Radio a translator and thanking everybody who wrote to him, including Major Serhiv Volnia from Mariupol and the Pope calling for reconciliation. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie